If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. What do you hope will happen one day? As you said here this morning, I think all of us probably have some hope, some desire that we long to see happen. Some of you long to see your 50th wedding anniversary and mark that milestone in your relationship. Some of you uh, are wanting just to make it to retirement and hope that you'll be able to last that long. Last year, we all longed to see our brother home safe and sound from Iraq. We all long for and hope for different things. Very often, these are ultimate things, matters of life and death, matters involving knowing God and being right with Him. And God's people, Israel, were no different. From the very beginning, humanity has rebelled against God, yet He has shown them mercy, making promises to His people of a coming restoration. It all began with the promise to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Though he and Eve had sinned, one day a new Adam would come, God promised. A son born of the woman who would reverse the curse of their sin. People were still looking for that promised son even generations later when Noah was born. In fact, they hoped he would be this promised son. And though he wasn't, he certainly pointed forward to him for rather than wiping out all of humanity for their sin, God preserved humanity through Noah and his family and promised that he would never wipe out all of humanity until sin would be destroyed. As time passed, God began to act on these promises, calling out by a, uh, out a man named Abraham to serve him and to know him. To Abraham, God committed himself, promising that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. God began to fulfill these promises by giving Abraham a son, Isaac. And to Isaac, a son, Jacob, was also given, who would be the recipient of those promises. From Jacob came 12 sons who grew into a large family, a nation of 12 tribes. And again, God showed mercy on that people, rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, making them His people, giving them His love. Yet despite all that, Israel continued the pattern of humanity and sinned. Despite their sin and willingness to forget God and His promises, though, God did not forget. And from Israel He chose a man to be king over His people. To this man, David, God promised that He would forever watch over His family and would one day cause Him to have a son. And He would be given an eternal throne. Yet Israel continued to trample on God's grace and mercy, even as the other nations made war on God and His people. Yet again, God continued to be gracious and loving towards His people, sending them prophets, calling them both back to faithfulness to Himself as well as encouraging them to, to know that He had not forgotten His promises that He had made. Specifically, that one day He would come to them and He would restore them, that He would do this through that promised Son of David, His anointed one, the Messiah. In fact, the pages of our Bible end with that prediction of one coming who would point the way who would be the forerunner of this Messiah. But then God was silent for 400 years. You can imagine maybe a generation goes by when God says nothing. But 400 years, the people of Israel went with no word from their God and no change. 
and how they live their lives. That blank page between the Old and New Testaments in your Bible, you should understand that is one of the darkest pages in the Bible. Yet as you turn the page, as the 400 years come to a close, God speaks into the world with a deafening, glorious message of hope and joy as He promises salvation, not just to His people Israel, but to all the nations through His Son, Jesus. And it's this Jesus that the New Testament wants us to know about. Particularly even as it begins, there are four different books devoted to telling us all about who Jesus is. We call these books Gospels. And though there are four of them and there is different information in them, we should not think of these Gospels as being contradictory but complementary. You can imagine if four artists were given the very painful task of painting a portrait of me. All of them would come out looking some, somewhat different, wouldn't they? Perhaps accentuating or emphasizing different characteristics that they saw. Likewise, each of the Gospels points to something different in Jesus and exalts that part of His glory. Matthew is specifically written to a Jewish audience. And as Matthew writes to show his readers who Jesus is, to record for them, the beginnings, the, the, the fulfillment of this message of good news. He wants his readers to see that God, all that God has promised to his people throughout time has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In fact, at the very beginning, he starts by showing, uh, uh, that this is the, he starts by showing the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. With those words and the genealogy that follows, Matthew is literally stitching together redemptive history. All of the workings that God has been doing prior Promising to his people Israel a Messiah. And Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the one who has come in fulfillment of those promises. He is the Messiah. He is the one that Israel has been looking for. He is the son of David who, was, who would act as a savior for the people of God. Matthew uh, spends his entire gospel in some ways writing what Paul summarizes so well in Acts 13. God raised up David to be Israel's king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Though written by Paul, that's the message that Matthew is wanting to convey to us this morning. And therefore, that is what we want to see as we think about all of the gospel of Matthew and its meaning to us this morning. In fact, it is going to be from the lips of Jesus himself that we want to see how he has come in fulfillment of all God's plan, purpose, and promises. So this morning I encourage you to follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 5 beginning at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God this morning. From this passage, we want to see four ways 
Four ways in which Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God, served Israel, and established His church as the long-awaited Messiah. The first thing that we see is this. As the Messiah, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. As the Messiah, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus has come to fulfill these things? Well, very often it depends on what you understand the word fulfill to mean. And in fact, there's lots of different uh, people that believe this word means lots of different things. Some think Jesus fulfills the law by confirming or establishing it, by saying this is what God said in the past and this is the exact same thing He wants to, to say now. Others think that He fulfills it by bringing to a fuller intended meaning. In other words, this you've been mistaken in understanding what the law means and now I'm going to tell you this is how you should have understood it. Still yet, there are those who think it simply means Jesus kept the law, that He fulfilled it in, in accomplishing and doing everything that it said needed to be done. Finally, there are those that think Jesus reduces the law to its simplest form, love, and therefore fulfills it. Now, there is something of a grain of truth in all of those understandings. Uh, nevertheless, they all lack a problem when we see the bigger picture of Jesus' teaching, not least of which from the book of Matthew. And I think the best way to understand what Jesus means when He says fulfill is to look at the other places where He uses this word and where Matthew himself uses this word fulfilled. In fact, when you look, almost all the time Matthew uses this word, it almost always means to fulfill a prediction or a prophecy. Now, Jesus did, did that, didn't He? Sometimes you will see uh, long lists of all the, prof all the prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus specifically fulfilled. For example, we read in Ma uh, Micah 5 where Jesus, the Messiah, would be born. And lo and behold, He's born in that same place. He fulfills the prophecy. But notice, Jesus does not say He just fulfills specific prophecies. What does He say? He says He has come to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. This is Jesus' way of saying He has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament. He says, all of it, all of it. I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. And Matthew demonstrates over and over again that this is exactly what he did. All of the law of the prophets, all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to, is anticipating Jesus. And when He comes, He brings it to its end. He brings it to the goal for which it is pointing and moving. In the opening chapters, for example, Jesus, we, we see recounted in Matthew, Jesus' birth, His early years, the beginnings of His ministry. And Matthew was wanting us to see that in doing all of these things, Jesus is fulfilling the very history and identity of the people of Israel. So Jesus is the one who comes out of Egypt just like Israel did in chapter 2. Furthermore, He is the one who is baptized and declared to be not just the Son of God like Israel was declared to be, but the Son in whom God is well pleased in chapter 3. And then this, this well-pleasing son is confirmed in this ability to please the Father as he undergoes temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, even as Israel uh, was tempted for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet Jesus does what Israel could not do. He walks away unscathed. He walks away perfect and righteous, having warded off all of the temptations of the evil one. 
Jesus' own life is fulfilling that of Israel's so that he is shown to be the true and better Israel. He is the servant they were supposed to be. And we can go on and on and on and on. Jesus' point here and the point of the entire of the New Testament, if we would, if we would be able to pull all the passages together at one time, we would see that, it's, that he is telling us this. Every story... Every passage, every proverb, every law, every list of dimensions for the ark or the tabernacle, every genealogy, every sacrifice offered in faith, all of the Old Testament came to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the Old Testament's intended end. All of the law and the prophets are written down in anticipation of Christ coming as the Messiah. Think of it like this. Like most couples, when Melinda and I were uh, planning to get married, we sent out invitations uh, to, pe- to people to come to the wedding. And on those invitations was all kinds of information. It was the location of uh, where the ceremony would be held. There was the time when it would start. Uh, it was uh, a listing of the participants. Um, I don't know why our parents' names are always put on the invitations. Maybe that's in case you know the parents, not the kids. I don't know, but that was on there. For people that were coming from out of town, a list of directions on how to get to the church was there. A list of hotels were there. It was printed on nice uh, cardstock and uh, with nice envelopes. And all this was great. But you know what? If we hadn't actually gotten married, that invitation would have been totally meaningless, wouldn't it? It wasn't until the ceremony began, the opening strains of the music started. It wasn't until Melinda walked down the aisle. It wasn't until her father put her hand and my hand together and we ascended to the platform. We made promises to one another. And the the minister said, man and wife, and we kissed and everybody rejoiced. Then, then the invitation had its intended meaning. It came to fulfillment. And likewise, that's what Jesus has done. He has come in fulfillment of all of God's plans, all of God's purposes, all of God's promises. If you know our doctrinal statement that we affirm together as a church that you affirm in your membership class, you will know this is the very thing that we believe. It says, all scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Where do we get that? From Jesus himself. I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Why do we read the Old Testament? Why do we treasure the law and the prophets? Because they point us to Jesus, the Messiah. But more than that, as the Messiah, Jesus provides lasting teaching. As the Messiah, Jesus provides lasting teaching. As the Messiah, Jesus provides lasting teaching. One of the questions that gets debated and discussed among Christians is this. What do we think about the Old Testament law? Do we keep it? Do we not keep it? Do we keep part of it? Do we keep none of it? In fact, we just talked about this at a Bible study over in Midland yesterday. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, if you're leaning on verse 18, it may sound like every single bit of the Old Testament, every single bit of the law must continue, right? There's a problem with that, though, isn't there? Because as you get into Matthew, you will find Jesus explicitly saying, you don't have to keep that law anymore. You don't have to keep that law anymore. That, that, the purpose of that law is done. And so you have things like the food laws. You have things like the temple and its sacrifices. Jesus all saying, those things are coming to an end. So what's going on here? 
uh, how do we understand what Jesus is saying? Well, frankly, he's already told us how to understand it in the previous verse. You can't read verse 18 unless you first understand verse 17. In verse 18, Jesus is giving the highest endorsement possible for the Old Testament. Every part of it, he says, down to the littlest stroke of a pen. Uh, the, 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 the dots that hang off that we call seraphs on the edge of a T where it's curled up at the bottom, even the smallest part, you can't do away with any of it, he says. But notice, he says, it is through him that how we respond to the law and the prophets is to be determined now. Suppose you are the recipient of an old house that has been bequeathed to you in a will. You get this house... You go into it and you remember it fondly because it was your grandfather's house. It was a house that you spent time in and you don't want to sell it. You want to keep it. In fact, you want to move into it. The problem is it's too small. Uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not the size for your big family. So what do you do with this house? Well, you begin to start making some changes to it. You begin to add on to the old house. Some walls are repainted. Others are torn down altogether. Still yet, some are taken down to the studs and new drywall is put up. New plumbing is put in. And of course, with, uh, you know, uh, teenagers, you've got to have more bathrooms. So you add that on there as well. Additional rooms are put on the side and the back. And even a second story is piled on top of the house. Now, that's a big project. And no analogy is perfect. Don't press the details because it will fall apart. But I think that conveys the basic point that Jesus is trying to make here. That we should understand how to read the Old Testament through Jesus Christ. The law is not intended to be abandoned, however, because it pointed to Him and finds fulfillment in Him, it must now be interpreted in light of Him. The law was given to a specific people at a specific time. And though it has abiding relevance for us, if we read it and apply it only through Christ. So he is the one who gets to say, yeah, that bit is done. You should understand the principle that lay behind it. And, and therefore draw the conclusion through me now how you should obey it. But maybe the specific outworking of the principle and those laws is done away with. Still others are built up upon. Others are strengthened and intensified. At the end of the day, because He is the goal of the law, Christ determines in what sense the law continues, what its new direction is, and how it is to be obeyed. And thus we see Matthew providing large blocks of teaching from Jesus to His disciples. In fact, these verses come at the very beginning of three chapters of teaching by Jesus. These chapters are in essence the outline of a much longer sermon that lasted an entire day that Jesus gave one day on a mountain. He begins right after this saying, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What is He doing? He knows that the people have been around, the scribes and the Pharisees, they've heard what they thought this law was about and all of the extra commands that have built up around and he said, you've heard it said this, but now I say to you this. In other words, Jesus is pointing them back to what the law was originally getting at. He's clearing out mistaken traditions. He's pointing the people in the direction the law pointed. More than that, though, he gives them new instructions. He adds to what they have already been given in the Old Testament, explaining to them what life is supposed to be like under the reign of the Messiah, what life is supposed to be like in God's kingdom. In fact, so important is the teaching of Christ. And in chapter four, he, 24, he says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
Jesus provides a lasting teaching for his people. So now let's think about this. If Jesus provides a lasting teaching, if he provides instruction that is important, not just for kind of theoretically understanding how to put the Bible together, how to understand the Old Testament, but if he is teaching us what life is meant to be like in the kingdom, are we listening to that teaching? I love the song that we sing. We are listening to your word. Morning and evening we come to delight in the words of our God. My question is, are we liars when we sing that? Are we really listening to God's word? Are we really listening to Christ's instructions? Do we really come morning and evening delighting in the words of our God? Now, I think that there's a difference in wanting that to be that way, wanting to delight in the words of our God day in and day out, but I think some of us probably are not even to that point yet. I think some of us close the book up on the shelf and let it gather dust like a phone book that no one uses anymore because we have speed dial and Google. And it just sits, it's useless for our life. And yet what does Jesus say? He says, this is an abiding, lasting teaching that I'm giving to you. And life in my kingdom is meant to be lived by these instructions. Unless we think they are somehow a burden like the Old Testament became to people apart from faith, Jesus will later say, no, I will give you my spirit to empower you to fulfill these commands. Nevertheless, the question falls back to us. What are we doing with the teaching that Jesus holds out to us? What are we doing with the instruction that he gives for his kingdom? This leads to the third thing, and that is this. As the Messiah, Jesus establishes the kingdom of heaven. As the Messiah, Jesus establishes the kingdom of heaven. Three times in two verses, verses 19 to 20, Jesus mentions this kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's, a, it's an important theme in Matthew. Um, it's mentioned in all the Gospels, some a couple of times. I think the, the most is something like um, 14 times one of the other Gospels. And it's like 32 times in Matthew. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. Jesus is concerned about this thing called the kingdom, and so is Matthew as he highlights it. In fact, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew tells us Jesus began to preach. What did he preach? Chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about God's ruling presence, his reign over the lives of people. Now, there's a sense in which God is always ruling, isn't there? We read in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's a sense in which, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, God is sovereign over all things. But there's also a sense in which, in a new way, the kingdom of God has come through Jesus, the Messiah. In Jesus, the fulfillment of God's saving purposes, His saving promises has broken into this world. The very hope of Israel is now here. And therefore, and therefore, a new establishment of God's reign has been made over the earth. And when that reign is acknowledged, so His kingdom is present. But understand this, the kingdom that Jesus brings, the kingdom of heaven, is not the kind of kingdom that His people expected. It's not the kind of kingdom Israel was looking for. They were expecting an inbreaking of the Messiah that literally physically shattered their enemies and established a visible throne reigning over all the nations of the world. 
Instead, Jesus says, that's not what the kingdom's going to look like. That's not, that's not what it's gonna, what's going to happen right now. In fact, he teaches a series of parables explaining the kingdom is coming and growing much differently. He says it's slow, like putting a seed in the ground and watching it grow up into a little shoot. And then year after year after year, finally it becomes a large tree. Or he says it's like, it's like leaven in, in bread dough. He says you, you work a little bit of it in and then it slowly permeates the whole thing. It doesn't just boom, happen. Most shocking of all, though, Jesus says not all will believe. Not all will look to the Messiah in faith. Not all will, will recognize the inbreaking of the kingdom. In chapter 13, he tells a parable, and he says this. A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Right after this, Matthew says the disciples come and they say, Hey, Jesus, why are you talking in parables? Why are you talking in this, in this way? Now, why were they asking that? Because they didn't get it. Jesus is they're going, you're talking about seeds and soils and thorns. What in the world are you talking about? So Jesus not only explains why he is teaching in parables, but he also explains to them what the parable means. And here's what he says it means. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. <coughs> As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in him, endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, I don't think he, he literally wants us to think that it's one in four all the time, but that's the number Jesus uses in the parable. He says, four people hear the word of God, only one believes. Only one has true and lasting faith. Rather than one massive turning toward God among his people, even some among the nations the Jews would have thought, no, he says, it's not going to happen that way. He says it's going to happen slowly over time as the kingdom grows and grows and grows. In the meantime, just as we heard in Psalm 2, the nations still rage against God and his king, the Messiah, Jesus. Where the kingdom of God is strong, the world resists even stronger. Where belief in God's reign is most fervent, the nations of the world rise up in rebellion against Christ. We see this in so many ways, politically, socially, even through open persecution. Where is the, where is the, 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 the church growing the fastest? South America, Africa, and Asia. And guess what? That's where Christians suffer the most. That's where it's illegal to be a Christian. And that's where people will kill you just for being a Christian. Why? Because the nations rage. And though, here's the reality, though they rage, God still holds them in derision. He still sits in heavens and he laughs. Why? Because he knows the kingdom is unstoppable. 
You cannot hack off the kingdom at its root and cause it to stop growing. No, it is going to keep pushing. It is going to keep growing eventually until all the nations lie crumbled at the feet of Christ. Just this morning, our kids got a, a little science lesson as a pop was left in the freezer and the can split wide open. And we just showed them, hey, look, look at this, you know, and the pop is all, you know, coming out there. And uh, that just fascinated them. Friends, that's what the kingdom is like. It doesn't just explode all of a sudden. It's like putting that pop can in the freezer. And as the, as the ice cool or as the, uh, as the pop cools and freezes, it slowly begins to expand until eventually psh, it pops the seams and it explodes. And there it is. That's how it's going to happen. And in the meantime, what we need to, what we need to understand is that it, there is a certainty to the kingdom coming. Even as Jesus came performing miracles and casting out demons, most of all destroying the power of sin by reigning from the cross, He is signaling the time of salvation has come. The future perfection of Christ's reign over all things has already broken into the world. Therefore, we have assurance of how the end will come. Some of the sweetest words that Jesus ever spoke were these. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. As the kingdom grows, the world will resist. But Jesus has overcome the world. Finally, as the Messiah, Jesus calls His people to righteousness. Jesus calls His people to righteousness. About eight years ago, a bishop in the Church of England preached a sermon in which he said shoplifting in certain circumstances was not a sin. It wasn't a crime. It wasn't wrong to do it. He said, for example, if you are in a large department store owned by a large corporation, it's okay to shoplift because after all, they're cutting down margins. They're hurting poor people. They're simply money-grubbing corporations and they're running over uh, average everyday people. So it's okay to steal from them. On the contrary, he said... If you're, a, if you're in a, a small store owned by a family, then, then the stealing would hurt. And so you shouldn't steal. It would be wrong to steal then. Now, surprisingly, before the Church of England even said anything, there was a public outcry amongst the unreligious people. Even the Home Secretary in Britain came out with a statement uh, censoring this bishop. Here was a man whose understanding of sin and morality operated on a sliding scale. But Jesus says he will have none of that in his kingdom. He says in verse 19, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is speaking of the commands he's about to give them in this sermon. And he says, For these commands there is no place for laxity. All of Jesus' commands are to be heard, understood, and obeyed by God's people. More than that even, he goes on to say in verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you were to take a poll in Jesus' day and you were to ask people, who are the most righteous people, who are the most devout before God, the answer is going to come back, first of all, the scribes, I mean the Pharisees. And the scribes probably shortly after. The Pharisees were thought this way because they worked hard at, at keeping meticulously all of the law of God. They dotted all the I's. They crossed all the T's. In some ways, they were the evangelicals of their day. They were a lay movement. They were the back of the Bible people. 
They would hold up, they would hold up the scrolls and say, Don't you, don't you believe the word of God? Don't you want to obey it? Don't you want to be a good Jew? And they would have their, their meticulous lists of all the rules to keep. More than that, they made lists of rules to help them keep the rules. They wanted to obey the law. But Jesus says, Jesus says, if you want to be part of my kingdom, your righteousness has to be more than theirs. It has to exceed theirs. Now, I can imagine the people hearing that are going, how, how is this possible? How's anybody going to get into the kingdom? I mean, look at, look at how, how, how severe they are in going to great lengths to obey the law. How are we going to do any better than that? And I've heard some people say that Jesus here is intentionally setting an impossibly high bar so that people will be convicted of their sin and see their need of Him and believe. And He doesn't actually expect that level of righteousness in His kingdom. The problem is it's just not right. Jesus here is laying out the Sermon on the Mount not as some kind of theoretical bar uh, that we should attain to. He is setting these things out saying, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be God's people, this is how you need to live. And it's different from the Pharisees because Jesus is telling His people to pursue real righteousness. This was the problem with the Pharisees. Though they had an amazing appearance of righteousness, their hearts were corrupt. They were sinful. They weren't, in fact, righteous. So, for example, in chapter 23, Jesus says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe spices. You tithe from your spices. And yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, you are so, you are so wrapped up in tithing that you even get your spice rack out and, and, and donate that to God, a tenth of it. This is the problem is you've forgotten about the person who doesn't have anything to eat outside your door. You're not concerned for the welfare of people. You're not concerned to actually be faithful to God. You're just concerned about checking off your list. The Pharisees claimed to care about the law, but they really trashed it because they reduced the law to a series of do's and don'ts and they lost any sense of the law's calling to a life of radical holiness in all areas of life. And Jesus is saying, if you're my disciples, that kind of righteousness is not going to cut it. That kind of whitewashed tomb living is not going to cut it. Instead, you need to go to the heart level with your righteousness. Jesus will go on to say, don't say, well, I've not committed adultery. He says, don't even lust after a woman. Don't say, well, I've never committed murder, but don't even hate that man. That's what Jesus' disciples are to look like. Now, some of you this morning hear that. And you're thinking, am I really a disciple? I mean, if that's the standard, I don't match up to it. I don't live that way. I'm not that righteous. I have fallen short. And here's the question. Do you acknowledge that? And do you want something different? Do you want a better righteousness for your life? If the answer to both those questions is yes... I realize I don't meet that standard, but I desperately want to. And frankly, your righteousness already exceeds that of the Pharisees. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, The Pharisees would stand at the temple to pray, 
And this is what they would say, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. While the tax, collector, the tax collector standing far off from the temple would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but would beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. As Jesus told the, the author of this gospel, Matthew, when he called him to himself, he said, I did not come to save the righteous. I came to save sinners. This is what the Pharisees could not bring themselves to do. They could not bring themselves to admit they were sinners, that they needed mercy from God. They said, we've kept the law. We're not sinners. We're not sinful. We are perfect in the eyes of God. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You are far from it because your hearts are far from me. But today, if you can acknowledge that you're not perfect, that you're not okay with God, that you are a sinner in need of God's mercy, then you are ready to look to Jesus as your Messiah, the one who makes you right with God by offering up his own life for you on the cross. That's how Jesus saves sinners. He bore in his own body God's full and righteous wrath against sinners' sins. Yet though dying on the cross, he was also raised back to life on the third day and therefore now sits forever enthroned as God's Messiah over all things. Even now he sits at the right hand of God as the object of saving faith when sinners look to him and not themselves as the means of being right with God, then they can find forgiveness for their debt of sin against God. More than that, though, God says He will count the perfect righteousness of Christ as their own. What does this do? This frees up God's people. This frees up the members of Christ's kingdom with joy and faith in their Messiah to now pursue a righteousness of their own. They can now come not thinking of it as a burden, not thinking they're earning righteousness to this places like the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is how Jesus calls me to live. And I want to live this way. And because Christ has given me now His Spirit, I can live this way. Jesus came in fulfillment of the hope of Israel, but He is also the fulfillment of all our eternal hopes as well. In Him, in Him alone, we find possible the life, the life that we want, the life that we need with God. Father, we are thankful for the promises that you have made to your people. We are thankful, God, that over, God, centuries, you continue to show mercy and eventually brought to culmination that mercy in Christ. Father, we pray that as Matthew has shown us that he is the Messiah, he is the fulfillment of all your promises, that, God, we would also see him as the only thing we need to make us right with you. And in God being made right with you, Father, help us by faith to pursue a righteous life, to see ourselves not as any citizen of any kingdom on this planet, God, but of seeing ourselves as, kingdom, as citizens in the kingdom of Christ himself. God, we pray that in the coming moments, in the coming days, God, in the coming years of our life, 
that your son would be honored and magnified as we live lives of joyful obedience to him. We pray in his name. Amen.